Rundown is a show where four Catholic men opine on current affairs of the world, on matters of faith, culture, and politics. It's unfiltered, it's daring, and it's certainly unapologetic. The Rundown is a weekly news show. But it's more than that. It's a family of like-minded Catholics who are preparing for the coming chastisement. We cover church news, politics, and current events around the world, linking them in a way no one else does, giving you the perspective no one else can. The Rundown is not meant for children because it informs and prepares parents, young adults, seminarians, even priests watch The Rundown to know about the most pressing and evolving threats to the Catholic faith today. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com You are watching the most watched, least trusted Catholic disinfo hour, The Rundown, one day early. Who could believe it? We have a whole list of news items for you tonight, and we have probably the most diverse Catholic podcast ever. Get ready. About the Second Vatican Council, uh, and particularly the implementation of the Council. You've written so much about this and talked so much about this. For people of my generation, I suppose the thing that most stands out from the faith of our fathers and grandfathers is the liturgy, the Mass. You have spoken about the reform of the reform, reforming the reform. How do you see that? actuating? How do you see it concretely taking shape as we move forward? Generally, I would say it was not well implemented, the liturgical reform, because it was a general idea now. Liturgy is a thing of the community. The community is representing himself, and so with the creativity of the priest or of the, of the uh, groups, uh, they will create their own liturgy. It's more uh, the presence of their own experiences and ideas than meeting with the presence of the Lord in the church. And with this creativity and the self-presentation of the community is disappearing the essence of liturgy because the essence is that we can go over our own experiences and receive what is not from our experience, what is a gift of God. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to restore not so much uh, certain ceremonies, but the essential idea of liturgy to understand in liturgy we are not representing ourselves, but we uh, receive the grace of the presence of the uh, Lord with uh, the church of the heaven and of the earth mm -hmm. and this universality of the liturgy is it seems to me the essential uh, definition mm -hmm. of liturgy and restores this idea will also help to be more obedience to the norms not as a juridical positivism mm -hmm. but really as uh, uh, sharing participating what is given to us from the Lord in the church. And that sense of sacrifice and worship that you've talked about uh, so elo eloquently, how do you see that being restored concretely? Will we see a return to 
the Adorantum posture, facing the, the priest facing away from the people during the canon, uh, a return to the Latin, more Latin in the Mass? Uh, versus Orientum, I would say, could be a help because it's really a tradition from the apostolic time and uh, is uh, not only uh, a norm but is expression also of the cosmical dimension and of the historical dimension of the liturgy. Uh, we are uh, celebrating with uh, the cosmos, with the world. We are in the direction of the future of the the world of our history represented in the sun and in the cosmical realities. Mm -hmm. I think uh, today with the new uh, discovering of uh, our relation with the created world mm -hmm. can be understood also from the people better than perhaps uh, 20 years ago mm -hmm. and also is a common direction priest and people are in common oriented to the Lord. Mm -hmm. So I think it could be a help. Always the uh, external chastis are not simply a remedy in itself, but right. could be a uh, help because it's a, a very uh, classical interpretation of what is the direction of the liturgy. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, I think it was good to translate the liturgy in the spoken languages mm -hmm. because we will understand, we will participate also with our thinking. Mm -hmm. And so, but uh, a stronger presence of some elements of Latin would be helpful to give the universal dimension, to give the possibilities that in all the parts of the world we can see I am in the same church. Mm -hmm. So generally, uh, popular language is, uh, is a, a good, good solution, mm -hmm. solution, but uh, some presence of Latin could be helpful to have more experience of universality. I know you are working on those new liturgical, uh, this new liturgical piece of legislation that the Pope previewed mm -hmm. in his encyclical on the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. We've been hearing a great deal from Cardinal Arinze and, and in some publications that this may be a precursor to a universal indult for the Tridentine Mass. Do you foresee that at all? I would distinguish between this future document and the problem of the indult. The future document is not a new legislation, but interpretation of given norms. So uh, uh, we have only to interpret, to clarify what is abuse and what is really uh, uh, application of the liturgy. In this sense, it's very limited, the possibility of this document, a clarification of abuses and clarification of norms uh, in this moment. The other is a different problem. I think generally uh, the old liturgy was never prohibited. We need only norms how in peace uh, apply it so that the reformed liturgy is the normal liturgy of the community of the church, but the author is always a valid liturgy of the church can be used, but in obedience to the bishops and to the Holy Father. Mm -hmm. And that's a, tr a great challenge I know in some parts of the church and in other parts of the church uh, they've embraced uh, the Pope's call for a more yes, frequent uh, yes. practice. I think it's mass. important to, to be open to this possibility and to uh, demonstrate so also the continuity of the church. We are today not another church as uh, 500 years ago. It's always mm -hmm. the same church and was in one time holy for the church. It's always holy for the church and it's not in another time an impossible thing. Right. 
the liturgy is uh, uh, living catechesis. Mm -hmm. I think so much is dependent from uh, uh, authentical liturgies, that in liturgies not only, as I said, appearing the ideas, the experience of this community is a representation of the faith of the church. You can see the sacrifice of Christ is here, and uh, the triune God uh, is in contact with us, we with him and so on. Mm -hmm. Liturgy is very important. Welcome to The Rundown. We are here. Some of us are not, however. Mike is gone. Brother has, uh, I forget what brother said he had to do. He's got something better to do, obviously, than hang out with us. But that's okay, James, because our ESG score is going to go through the roof tonight. Because we have for you special guests, Alberto. Hello, Ryan. Hi, James. Oh, and there we go. Adrian of uh, Catholic Drive Time. Can I we identify where you're from? Or are you going to get asked? Oh, it's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Anyway, uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thank, Thank you, Ryan. Thank Thanks you for the invite. Happy to be here. All right. So we get to it. That intro, of course, uh, Pope Benedict as Cardinal Ratzinger, talking about the liturgy, a lot of ideas that I think it's a fair bet that most of our, our uh, listenerships not too keen on, but they actually impact a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, which brings us, it has been uh, reported the Vatican officially put out a uh, boletino, that is a, uh, you know, an update, a rescript, as it were, that, you know, declares that, well, you know, bishops actually can't do what canon law says they can do. And, uh, you know, dispense from various elements of traditionis custodes that rather they it all has to go through, uh, you know, Bishop Roach. And so it's a clarifying uh, here. Let me read uh, the relevant portions and we'll talk about some other things with that. Um, so dispensations reserved in a special way to the apostolic seat. The use of a parish church or the erection of a personal parish for the celebration of the Eucharist using the. 1962 missile, the granting of permission to priests ordained after the publication of Jailers of the Tradition, uh, trademark, um, to celebrate using the 1962 missile, etc. And so you can go on to the rest of the document, but um, and you can read it from Diane Montagna, Montagna's page uh, here on Twitter. But that uh, is interesting. It is interesting in a lot of ways. And so James, we'll go to you first. What uh, do you take from uh, this particular news item, this particular rescript of the Holy Father. 
Well, you know, um, this is further clarification on what we have been uh, ahead of, I would say, in many ways. A lot of people are still trying to um, understand Traditiones Custodes in a very uh, friendly way, meaning that uh, there's got to be some good that comes out of it because it's a document uh, being issued by uh, by Rome. And so there has to be some sort of benefit to them uh, releasing such a, a document, uh, whether or not it's to bring uh, better order into uh, tradition, being that a lot of uh, dioceses now are you know, offering this, this mass and, um, you know, it's getting out of hand the, the amount of uh, conflation that goes into uh, showing up at a, diocese, at a diocesan mass and then having people there uh, hold on to views that they consider uh, to be dangerous, you know, so there's a lot of radicalization. Uh, and so a lot of people view this favorably, you know, surprisingly enough, right? They view this as a favorable document to sort of uh, extinguish those radical elements from the diocese. Uh, and uh, this is a, a way for them to to see that through. But what this document is is uh, turning out to be as more more and more people are opening their eyes to doc, to document really meant to clamp down on the traditional Latin mass, not radical factors within uh, the diocese per se. It's an attack on the mass itself, and so people are starting to realize, oh no, we thought this was meant to flush out those radical trads who deny. Vatican II, uh, but in fact, this is a way to flush out, uh, it, you know, the, the traditional line of mass. So right now, what, what I see this document uh, being is a redux of the indult from the early, uh, from the late, uh, I guess, from the um, late 80s and the early 90s. This is uh, basically reducing the amount of indults. And that's what this is again. It's creating an indult situation again, a particular indult situation, if I may add. Um, and this is not good for Holy Mother Church. Alberto, um, I'm sure uh, you've uh, heard and read about this particular rescript. What, what are your thoughts on it? You're known it's for the cool. extra spicy takes on, on Twitter. <laughs> it's uh, it's very interesting what's happening. So I know of a particular diocese, personally, where the bishop hadn't done anything about traditiones uh, custodes, just left things go on as usual. And then eventually Rome actually wrote to those bishops that had not done anything about traditions. So Rome wrote to them and said, you have to request permission because uh, you're still doing, allowing such and such and such that goes against uh, traditions. Custodes. And so uh, this particular bishop in this particular diocese, not even going to say in which part of the world, he wrote to Rome and uh, to everyone's surprise, Rome's response took a good while. And when the response came, it was basically just let them keep going as they are going. And the only restriction was they could not publicize the mass times online. That's uh, that was the only restriction, and that came about a month ago. Uh, so the question was was uh, was uh, Rome sending that response because they knew that further restrictions were coming, where the bishops were not going to be able to circumvent around those anyway. Or maybe the, the specific cleric that wrote this response is somebody that's a little bit more favorable, favorable toward tradition. So obviously something that we will never know. However, uh, 
as James said, it's evident that it's an attack on the mass. And then Roach said uh, about uh, maybe a year or a year and a half ago in an interview that the traditional mass represents a different ecclesiology. So they definitely see it as something different. And then that, to add on to that, what's what I thought was very interesting in that uh, uh, intro interview with uh, Raymond Arroyo and Pope, well, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, uh, is that it seems as if the, the modernists, which I would include, of course, Cardinal Ratzinger in there, the modernists, they are acting as if this is a, a new church. Because they're like, well, we need to figure out what is the, the best balance. Why? And, and the question is, why aren't you just taking what has been handed, handed on to you? Adrian, uh, exactly same thing. Is. Let's get uh, going around the horn. What are your uh, thoughts, your reaction to the, this rescript? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because uh, who who here was surprised? Anybody? Uh, anybody? No, nobody surprised. Okay, because it's very interesting. This happened, and you know, bishops are. How do I put this in the most charitable way possible? They're excellent at seeing where the wind is blowing and making sure that they don't get themselves in too much trouble and so what i saw this document really as which is kind of interesting because i thought that more people would kind of see it this way but they didn't was that this was a opportunity to give the bishops who wanted to restrict the mass but were afraid to because they didn't want to get the backlash from the traditional communities because they're well aware that the traditional communities mobilize whenever these kind of things happen there's rosary rallies there's writing campaigns there's all these things happen whenever they attack the traditional communities and the politically astute that's what i was looking for the politically astute bishops did not want to engage in that they did not want to have to endure that and so what do they do instead well they just give minor restrictions and mostly leave them alone but this gives them the opportunity to say my hands were tied i must do this I'm so sorry. It's not my fault. Take it to the home office. Um, of course, there are some good bishops who will be uh, trying to sh suffer through this, but uh, I'm speaking of the ones that are more left-leaning, and we're all talking about why aren't those really bad bishops not doing what we would expect them to do? And that's my analysis of it. I think, too... Uh, hold on a second. I can actually run the show, too. I think that um, so I kind of took a couple of things with this. So one, um, as uh, you know, I, I joke, I call the document jailers of the tradition. Uh, Roach very much wanted the bishops to be the jailers, which probably wasn't a bad expectation, given the fact that uh, the, the initial resistance to Sumorum Pontificum when it came out and he had bishops putting all these restrictions that were not in the actual document into you know these kind of diocesan policies for one of their priests to be able to celebrate it even though benedict basically just said every priest has the right to say it and then uh, back in 2007 um you know it's you'd think that a lot of bishops would have been chomping at the bit but a lot weren't so i kind of took that as it's more of the kind of the pastoral situation one this is going to be a headache for me and bishops don't like a lot of work in general, there's some that are that do, you know, there's good ones out there, but a lot of bishops don't want to have extra problems. They don't want to deal with more trouble. And also they don't want to have a situation where they're going to be the ones blamed for it and then have the, all these people get mad, get on social media and say what a bad bishop their bishop is because he did this to us. 
Um, and, and so rather against bishops like to be loved, they like to, you know, be praised. They don't like to deal with messy, you know, pastoral situations that, and some just have a heart. Hey, look, I, I don't even care what these people are about, but it's kind of heartless to do this to them. And so they did, well, much like their, you know, their liberal predecessors back in the nineties and two thousands used to do. So it was interesting with Cardinal Ratzinger in that interview where he's talking about a document that basically was uh, Redemptionum Sacramentum. I don't know if anyone remembers that one under JP2. And that document was the document to end all abuses. Take that, trads. There's no sort of going to be good now. You're going to get excited for it. You know, and it's going to be abuse free. They were literally saying that back then. You know, it's, it's hard to find the old articles. Um, yeah, I saw one on Catholic Answers, I know, that was hailing that document as the end of all abuses, right? So what's the first thing a Cardinal Mahoney did? He used Canon 87 and said that, well, more or less, not quite in these terms, but virtually everything laid out in Redemption and Sacramentum is as an abuse. It's customary in the Diocese of Los Angeles. And so <laughs> I'm using Canon 87 to, uh, to exempt all any priests from following this document. What did you hear out of Rome? Crickets? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Not a word. And so that's... Uh, you know, more or less what a lot of bishops were, you know, trying to do here or, or very quietly too, not uh, not to make a big stink or get, get too much attention drawn to themselves. And and and, 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 and Ryan on that with a shortage of priests. So mm -hmm. uh, the concern, if, if, I, even a lot of liberal bishops don't necessarily want to get rid of the conservative issue bishop, uh, sorry, priests that just go along the line because then they don't have anybody. And then, and then they, get, they mm -hmm. get into trouble with uh all sorts of different things and i had a a priest uh and, and now not to mention that a lot of this vatican ii sort of accepting conservative priests like trats i mean i've i've seen that <laughs> they like traditionalists and i've I had a priest once tell, tell me uh so uh he told me in person he said so the pope wants me to tell you to go to the new mass that's not going to happen Right. And I know for me, and I've told this story before, but um, I put my foot down at a Latin Novus Ordo and I said, I'm done with the clowning. <laughs> that was at the, the highest form that it had chant, had nice music. It was the highest form this, this, this that mass could ever have. And I said, no, I'm done with the clownery. And I went to a vernacular language Byzantine mass instead because it was so much more reverent. It was fruit of tradition is better. I mean, we can talk about issues in terms of uh, the Byzantine churches and whatnot. But in the meantime, that, that's and then we you know found traditional mass again and we moved up here you know, where we got it regularly and that, that and that, that's it that's been my entire liturgical life is the traditional mass in Byzantine you're not going to get me back to some more reverent Novus Ordo I've already seen as reverent as it gets and that was it <laughs> I was done with that so um, I don't know how many other people many other people out there I'm sure there are a lot of trads if they saw the Novus Ordo in Latin they saw the traditional mass they might not actually notice the difference on first glance but um, you know, that I, I knew and it, it got so jarring. It's like, all right, I'm just going to do my traditional missile because the grammatical errors and the problems in this thing and the offness of various prayers and especially the priest still wants to do Eucharistic Prayer 3 or Eucharistic Prayer 4. The, this particular chapel, they loved using EP4. I have no idea why. Uh, not the Roman canon, but, you know, you, so you could hear all these, you know, different, and I'd be like, all right, I'm not, you know, especially at that time, uh, I wasn't as strong a Latinist as I am now. And even now, not the greatest Latinist that ever was. But, you know, I was like, all right, I could be making a mistake. I look it up online and other people were talking about it, right? 
And it, I even see articles like Father Zusseldorf would write about it, you know, different things. Oh, yeah, this is actually is a kind of cut and paste. Nobody actually knows if this prayer actually makes sense. You know, and they, they're talking about these. All right. It's not just me. So I just got out my traditional missile and, uh, you know, and that made it worse because now it's like stark night and day. All the ritual that was cut. It's not just the Latin. It's not just, you know, this or that little thing that they added here, there. It's the entirety of all of it and the archaeologism and antiquarianism that goes into so many of the decisions of changes they made to it and everything else. But, and what's even more uh, pertinent is how, you can see this more, especially with the uh, Ratzinger reform that, you know, his attempt at the reform of the reform back in, I believe it was 2009 or 2010. I don't I don't remember where basically he looked at certain things and decided that uh, certain things needed to conform to prior standards. Uh, case in point, you know, looking at the uh, for many and seeing seeing that that phrase that people actually had been writing about this. I think Michael Davies actually uh, wrote a book, uh, you know, using that as an example of what was wrong. You know, it's it's like what's happening here in this consecration. You know, is this actually formulaic to you know? I mean, what the way we've understood it throughout the years, or are we taking out for many entirely? And is this a trial balloon? Because it seems like the masses being said right now are all invalid because of this, uh, because of this phrase here not being there. And so when those changes came around, people started asking themselves questions. Well, if if they can change this aspect of it because we've complained about it for so long. What else can we can can we glean, glean from this? And you know, or are there other things with this mass that are deficient or that are lacking? And the more they ask these questions, the more they realize, well, you know what? Rather than looking at this reform of the reform and you know pushing forward, we're just going to go to a place where they actually offer the traditional Latin mass. And that's what myself and a you know a few other people started doing at that time. Is you know what? We're done with this trial thing here. We're done with the incremental movement toward tradition. We want tradition, and we want it now. You know, it's very interesting, James, you say that because I was thinking about something similar when I my whenever I think about the the new mass, even even whenever you think about like what what Ryan's talking about, the the unicorn mass, the most beautiful, most perfect reform of the reform, Latin Novus Ordo. It's the best mass ever. It's just as Vatican II attended. And you think about it, and you know, once you realize the mass is not something that can be looked at in a vacuum. It has to be looked at in its context because all things have to be looked at in its context. And you realize if you took the, the Latin Novus Order, the perfect one, you drop, took it out of the universe and you place it in a vacuum somewhere and you said, okay, well, it's not that bad. It's actually kind of nice. Uh, but then you look at it in comparison to what happened and you realize that this was intended to be a destruction of the old mass and you look at what's been taken away like ryan's talking about the stripping of this the stripping of that the changing of the words here the, the unprofessionalism and the latinization which i don't even know i don't know any latin so i would never have noticed any of that but you notice all these little bitty things that are happening and you say how did we get here if it was in a vacuum you'd say oh well i guess it's just always been this way well that and then okay i guess it's fine but you realize that we what was taken from us something that was there before and it was destroyed in order to bring about this. And that's the real reason why that even the most perfect one ever with all the proper intention, everything, it's still lacking because you realize it was something that was uh, it came out of a desire to destroy. Now, obviously, the individual priest, they may or may not know anything of that, uh, but I'm talking about the architects. 
Oh yes, and, and you talk yeah. about the architect there. Let me just drop uh, something here for people to to understand is there um, the one of the translators and one of the early translators. I believe his name is Father Somerville. Uh, Ryan, you may have his actual name. Uh, Canadian. Yeah, that's priest right. Too. Uh, I can't remember his first name, but you're in the right track. That's his last yeah, name. Somerville. Yeah. Who who actually worked on the interpretation, the the vernacular interpretation of 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 the mass came uh, 180 degrees back to tradition because he realized what what he had done. He realized he had aided in the destruction of the uh, of, of of the mass of you know of Holy Mother Church, and he came back to his senses uh, just before he died. And then this is kind of the uh, destruction, you know, that uh, has been left in the wake of, of, of all of this. And people, people, uh, whether it's many or whether it's few, but people are, you know, waking up. It's taking people a long time, but they're they're waking up. It started with few numbers, and now the numbers are are increasing. And none of none of us here, four of us talking here, none of us were born into this tradition so to speak. We had to learn for ourselves. We had to open our eyes. We had to ask questions. Sometimes the questions were not very popular. I was a thorn in my bishop's side. I was a thorn in my Novosoto pastor's side. You know, I, I forced him to do things that he didn't want to do just by, because I was asking questions, you know, and I was, I was concerned, not just for myself, but for, you know, my family and, uh, you know, how, how, how we intended to stay Catholic in an atmosphere that was basically telling us that we needed to appease the world. You know, and you start looking at this, just like Adrian was just saying, you start looking at this and you go, well, this is all good and nice, you know, but in comparison to what we've had in the past, you know, what what are we actually gaining here? And why these little bite sizes, you know, give us something more substantial. And that's kind of where we are today with traditionist uh, custodes. People are starting to see now this is not uh, something that we can just ignore because it affects, the you know, the rat trads. You know, it's going to affect everybody. We just need to take a quick pause because well, you're catching us on Restoring the Faith because uh, we still have a strike that keeps us on our own channel, on the Rundown channel. Probably something Mike said, since he's not here, I can, <laughs> <laughs> we can blame him for everything. But um, it, we are also on Rumble, and I had the Rumble link earlier up in the comments. I'll put it in again. And we are also streaming on the Crusade channel. Uh, radio the way it should be our partner network and so don't forget to check out crusadechannel.com um alberto if we could bring you back uh in on uh you know the questions of the the novus ordo because well you know jailers of the tradition says that the the novus ordo is the uh you know the unico in italian which means the soul uh, expression of the Roman right, and they don't seem to have any problem with things like this. Why? Why? <laughs> Thanks to the, the one priest puppet for having a Beretta. That's pretty cool. I but, was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, what in the world? But hey, it, it's the sole expression of the Roman right now, Alberto. <laughs> mm. uh, the fullness. Yeah, you know, I, I was walking around Rome, and uh, the Roman was the papal basilicas and all that stuff, and. I thought it was interesting that there was a lot of reverent 
bogus order masses going on. And there's still something and a lot that felt off about the whole thing. Uh, it, it just felt as if people were trying to be extra, extra loud. Uh, and uh, at some point, I'm in St. Peter's Basilica and I'm at the tomb of St. Pius X. And I overhear an American priest preaching to obviously an aging congregation saying, well, thanks to Vatican II, we can now understand the rights. Totally, totally had nothing to do with, I mean, I assume whatever readings they were doing in that mass, but uh, they, they can keep the attacks going, to be honest, because at the end of the day, the way that I look at it, my grandparents were married in 1962. There's pictures of their wedding uh, and it's a traditional Latin mass. And then their children don't go to mass. They, they don't go to the Novus Ordo. And then my cousins, my siblings, etc., don't go to mass. So it's a total failure. It's a total rejection of, of uh, people in general. Uh, and then people don't even go to mass. They tell us, well, it's because you're schismatic, whatever, whatever. Uh, but then I went to a funeral, a funeral, quote unquote, mass recently. And the priest there said, well, it's a Saturday and it's after 4 p.m. or something. He's, he's like, so you don't have to go to mass tomorrow, Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> they don't even want to go to their own masses. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so here's a follow up question. <laughs> Here's a follow-up question. Maybe uh, we can do Randall Horn here. So what does this mean when people now attack the culture? And rightfully, they attack the culture, but they blame all of this on the culture. It's the culture that has moved us in this direction. But here, you know, Alberto is telling a story of something he experienced, you know, at a funeral mass on a Saturday, you know, done by a priest. What does that have to do with the culture that people are so you know, uh, are, are blaming as the sole uh, reason why the, the world, especially in the church, is now gone bonkers. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my goodness. You know, I was thinking while you're saying that, like the word culture, you know, we talk about this. Many, many people have said this. I'm not unique or very smart, but the, the word culture comes from word cultish, right? And what is what is your cultist but your religion? And so, you know, the famous Cardinal Manning saying that all political problems are ultimately religious problems. So how did we get here? It was an abandoning of the faith. And uh, Mr. Casey, he shared that tweet uh, earlier this uh, week of uh, the, the fall and decline of religious life in Ireland. And it was like, OK, it happened right here. And this is when the Second Vatican Council happened. And I made the, the point, oh, yeah, and make sure you recognize they have no correlation whatsoever. It was literally anything and everything but that. Um, so these things are happening and the culture really does matter. And like Alberto was saying, these things are affecting our families. And it seems like the the and so it is going to scandalize people on every single side. I have friends who are Novus Ordo Catholics. I have friends who are traditional Catholics, FSSP, SSPX, set of a contest. I have friends across the board. I have friends who are non-practicing Catholics. And probably the one that will get me in the most trouble is having friends that go to the SSPX. Um, but I have a friend who he was at, and I would try to refrain from telling anyone's names. But I have a friend who just got fired from his job as a principal at a local Novus Ordo Catholic middle school. He attended the SSPX chapel in his city, and but he also attended mass at the church so he was fine with going to the novus ordo on some days so he would go on fridays and every now and then on sundays he would go to the novus ordo at his at the school he was principal of and he was fired from his job why because he was divisive how was he divisive well he brought in the baltimore catechism that's one thing he did uh two 
he talked about chapel veils and five of the girls in the school decided to wear chapel veils and he was reported as forcing all the students to wear chapel veils he would receive communion kneeling and on the tongue um these things that were very simple he terrified the children by talking about hell and he one was the other thing the other thing was oh and he mentioned which is unrelated to to catholicism not directly but indirectly he mentioned rigor in education and they said they want the kids to be happy healthy and having a good time so this is a huge situation that we're seeing here and what is his crime he's being too catholic and that's what we're seeing your the only crime that you can commit in the church today is to be too catholic and there's probably going to be a lot more of that essentially the the beatings will continue until morale improves <laughs> Not good. No bueno. Yeah, exactly. Until the morale for the, the Novus Ordo improves. And on that vein, too, there's also been a lot of discussion because apparently there's going to be another document that's going to come out uh, in, in in Holy Week, right? And, and uh, the beginning of Holy Week. And then granted, um, it's going to be you know a lot of speculation in this segment, but so, uh, some of the details that have been said is it will be an apostolic constitution which is the very same type of document that uh, Pope Paul VI used to uh, usher, usher in the Novus Ordo anyway. So it, it's, uh, you know, so there's a lot of people speculating what, what's he going to do in it. And um, I had heard from a priest who'd heard, you know, people talking. So we're not like, what are we, third hand hearsay, you know, to take it for what you will. But he hasn't steered me wrong on stuff before. He said one of the things that he's heard talked about is uh, forbidding the faithful in you know in, in, even in the fraternity and in the institute of christ the king or other latin mass orders that are in full communion from going to the triduum masses that they're going to have to go to their territorial parishes that is go to the novus ordo hmm. and so that, that's one thing i have heard again that's hearsay i have no solid source for that but that's be, i wouldn't be surprised especially they're releasing that in holy week so let's go around the horn uh speculation about uh this particular document james I mean, I, I think it's very likely, but some have also speculated now that since uh, we just had these uh, this uh, drop of the um, rescript, that it might be something to note that something bigger might not be coming. But I, I'm still expecting a bigger hammer to, to drop, whether or not it falls on Easter uh, or Holy Week um, is not something that um, I'm 100 percent confident in. You know, but uh, it's certainly I think it's coming one way or the other. It doesn't have to be uh, within the next six weeks. Um, I certainly think that, uh, you know, the original drop of, uh, sorry, uh, Traditionis Custodes is definitely um, a movement in that direction. How it doesn't matter how we want to look at it. I mean, in the end, they're going to try to force people to. Uh, put some sort of incense uh, in and burn the incense along with uh, the uh, with with the Vatican. They want people to be married to the Novus Ordo, and if it's if you have traditional priests, they might say, "Well, we'll give you your mass if you personally um, go to Holy Thursday and uh, basically, uh, you know." participate in some sort of reverend uh sorry uh a reverend uh uh 
what what do you want to call it here? Uh, well, in this case, the chrism mass. I think you're referring yeah, to right. Right. You, yeah, you go to the chrism mass on Thursday and participate in the uh, what, what 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 do they call it? You know, well, when all the priests are back right? there. They, yeah. yeah, thank you. Some sort of celebration. See, I'm so far gone into tradition that my, my right. mind does not even occur. Right. There, I mean, there's already, for, I mean, for a number of years, the fraternity, and even in some cases, the society, too, right. have sent right. priests that have gone, and they've sat in coro, but they've that, right. you know, right. but in a surplus, not not in, right. uh, not concelebrating, not, not vested, right. just, you right. know, to be there to give her presence. Hey, Bishop, we're here. And even the society has right. done that. You know, we're right. here, but not actually can celebrate and so that seems to be uh, what you're saying they're going to go to that that is the next oh yeah I, I i definitely think and this is not sitting in core anymore it's actually mm -hmm. put your put your arms out please everybody you know right <laughs> yeah there we go the epiclesis there we go everybody there we go you know <laughs> get it, yeah. <laughs> everyone get in there right? yeah it's so yeah, I, in, I, yeah, yeah ahead, I, I won't watch into that right now alberto your thoughts on the the potential possible document coming in in april yeah so what what uh, we have to consider for ourselves is where and ryan alluded to this earlier where do we want to draw the line uh the line for my family and for myself is that uh so we obviously still have to live in the real world and in the real world not everybody's a trad uh people uh, especially asian and, and churches to a large degree we live in cultures that and, and have family members that are all noble sort of attenders. So we have to live in reality uh, as far as saying, okay, what are the practical implications for this? So at the end of the day, it should be clear. If you're still coping that, oh, the, the, they don't want to stamp out the Latin mass, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing that I can, there's no way that I can help you. There's nothing that I can say because you're not living in reality. They've said it. Uh, I said it, the accompanying note to that original document says it, period, end of story. So then the next question for us that uh, live and accept reality is what does it look in practice? And I, I obviously can't tell people what they should or shouldn't do because uh, we're in a situation where, uh, you know, we just have to be very understanding of other people's situations of what uh, they end up signing for their families. But what I can say is that for my family, we've decided, or I've decided, I suppose, that uh, my uh, wife and my children, under no circumstances, will attend the Novus Ordo, period, end of story. Uh, uh, and, we and we had it just recently where I went to the funeral by myself. As hard as it is, we really have to uh, start thinking about the practical implications of how we are going to fight uh, this fight for tradition and what it's going to look like for, especially for the people that fall right. under us, and that at the end of the day, we're going to be judged uh, by every single thing that we allowed uh, in our homes and where that line uh, is for us and our families. And just to be clear before we bring Adrian in, um, is that we're not laying any judgment on anyone that's in the chat that's watching on, you know, if you go to the Nova Sorda, you're not Catholic enough. You're not trad enough. Obviously, everyone's doing the best they can in the situation they're in. We're not laying down a judgment on you because you don't go here or you don't go there, et cetera. We're you mostly... You know, when we say we won't go, we're talking about us and our families and our situations. But, you know, these issues do need to be talked about. And so just realize we're talking about it without any judgment on any of you. And, um, and Ryan, and see, Ryan, at the end of the day, this is one of my biggest problems with Cervacantus. I can agree all day that Francis is the Pope. However, when you start saying that it is dogmatic, that, that if you accept Francis the Pope, you are not Catholic, where has a Pope thought that? So... Uh, I do believe, obviously, that the day is going to come when the Pope's, Pope's going to say that the Novus Ordo is a danger to the faith, 
but we're not there just yet. And so we have to live with the practical implications, just as you said. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know my wife is, uh, has never attended the Novus Ordo ever, just so y'all know. Also, I'm not married. Uh, <laughs> so, but okay, the, the thing that's interesting here and the thing that, I think that the, the horn that I've been honking the last couple of days on, on the radio is consistency. I was talking about the slippery slope argument and why that's not actually a fallacy. At least the proper way of using it is not a, it's not a fallacy. Following things to their logical conclusions is not a fallacy. And this is a very important point because whenever Tritionis Custodis came out, and everything, everybody was talking and having discussions about it. Um, there was the great book that was put out on the juridical test. Does it pass the juridical test by the uh, fraternity of St. Vincent Ferrer over in France? And um, here's the real question here. The real question is consistency. And the reason why I say that is because I, I know when I was, I was taught that in religious life, the idea here is docility and obedience. Uh, repeated over and over again, docility and obedience docility to learn and to take in from your superiors and obedience to carry out the actions and not just to carry out your actions, but to anticipate the desires of your superiors and fulfill them. Now, the actions of Traditionis Custodis, it's incredibly unclear in terms of the language and the juridical uh, actions that are taking place there. But what is clear is the intention and desire of the Holy Father. Nobody can really argue that. And so, Many people will try to talk about talk about the same issue, and they try to pretend that they don't understand what Francis wants. And so in at the end of the day, I really just want consistency. And so I kind of have a secret desire that I want them to just hurry up and release the document explaining, hey, we just want to ban it all. Just that way we can have it all out there. We can have everything clear, and then we can actually engage in the proper debate on the question of, all right, is this a legitimate order? Okay, how does this work exactly? And what are the limits and powers? All these different questions are things that we have to cover. But instead of actually dealing with the real issues, we're battling over what was the intention of the Holy Father or, oh, he meant this. He didn't mean that. Oh, did he mean the ordinariate? Did he not mean the ordinariate when he's talking about that? What about the Dominican rite and the seraphic rite? Do those count as under the, the unica? Um, all these different <laughs> questions. But we all right. know he meant to get rid of it all. Right. And here's the right. question. You know, people are, are asking this question. Does, does this also specify uh, the 50, you know, 54 missal? Or is it just 62? You know, because the, yeah. the document is, is, explicitly states 62. And so right. what what loop, loopholes are looming or, around this? People are just asking, you know, the question because guess what? There's no clarity. There's never been, yeah. you know, clarity throughout this whole thing. And here right. we are with risk script number one. Is there going to be risk script yeah. number two? These days, I think the best policy is just to do and, you know, and then ask for forgiveness later rather than ask permission first because sure, then you're going to give sure. them an idea. Oh, yeah, we better ban that too. You know, right. and uh, it's uh, I forgot best, about that one. Thank you for reminding me. Right. Right. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, that's banned too. And, and likewise, all the religious order rights, you know, and that's one of the huge impo impoverishing, uh, impoverishing things is the uh, the rights of the religious orders, you know, the Dominican right. Cistercian rite of mass. The Benedictines uh, never had a monastic rite. They always used the Roman rite, but the Cistercians developed their own rite. And then likewise, uh, yeah, the Carmelites, which uh, when they came to the West, the Dominicans helped them, you know, work their liturgy into a Western liturgy. Uh, you see certain traces of the Dominican rite in the Carmelite rite. 
Um, and you, you have things like that. And then, of course, the, of the actual, um, you know, those were all pretty much, they were never suppressed, but the pressure was put on really heavily to, to abandon those and adopt the Novus Ordo. And then one of the holdouts was the Norbertines. And then uh, when their abbot retired, new abbot came in, boom, done. They just abolished it, and you're doing the Novus Ordo now, and uh, which is a shame. So, and they, you know, they literally abolished it so that if there, you know, there are any Norbertines want to do a traditional mess, they have to do the the traditional Roman rite. They can't do their own rite because mm -hmm. uh, the, the abbot's not you know, is not allowed it. Um, you know, there, then there's a question of like, well, could they have vernacularized some of it? I mean, I'm not in favor of saying we need vernacular liturgy, but on the other hand, if that's what I'm offered. And it's the traditional mass without any kind of, you know, archaeologism and changing things. And and it was generally partially or mostly in vernacular. I, I would take that. Not that I'm advocating for it, by the way, but I would take it over the Nova. So basically, so, so basically, Ryan, you're advocating for uh, <laughs> Anglican color because they create did a lot of creating of things um i almost wish they they would have picked up the serum right and done a yes done a translation i've, of had, yes. Well, yeah, I've yeah. had this discussion yeah. with ordinary yeah. priest on many occasions and yeah. i won't call out any particular priest but there are many who agree right do you think yeah in, in some in some regard do you think all of this i mean when you when you think back to the uh actual document itself and what we were left with with uh sacrosanctum concilium even even stemming from that you know people want to go back to sacrosanctum and say well this is where we're drawing our understanding of what was to be done but yet here we are uh 60 years later with uh every priest doing whatever he thinks uh, his interpretation of Sacrosanctum Concilium is there's been no f formula. I mean, and you can point to the GR GIRM all day, you know, but but that's not even enforced. No. So uh, people don't know. Uh, they, 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 it's like they're operating without any sort of uh, uh, a directive. You know, it, it's just all it's every man for himself. Whereas when you go into a traditional right, at least you have the book there. And, and you know, people feel people you know who celebrate the traditional Latin mass they feel the need to follow to to uh, you know uh, say say the black and do the red. I think um, you know we we've talked about this a bit before, but it, it's the you know the the not following the red is more or less a feature, not a bug. You know, right, there right. it, it's the the culture that has been in, reinforced. Whenever the faith, and it's like, oh, why don't you just spend time in your parishes? And if you see problems, write the bishop. We did all that in the 80s and 90s. Faithful Catholics did that. They wrote the bishop when the priest was at creating his own prayers and changing <laughs> things to invalidate the mass and uh, saying yeah. heretical things. And nothing. Nothing happened. was done. But if nothing someone came done. out and said yeah. that even in Nova Sordo and Latin priests, we get suspended for that back in the 80s, in the right. 90s. You know, one of the... First indoor Some, mass I went yeah. to, there was this old French Canadian priest that uh, he was he was actually a great priest. Um, he had done a Novus Ordo in Latin before, you know, it, it, like when they couldn't get the indult, so he'd done that. Mm. And priests in the diocese tried to claim that he, you know, that this was disobedient and wrong, and uh, and that was a Novus Ordo in Latin. So it's like you can go back to Sancta Sancta Concilium and say, hey, what about this section that says that? And mass has to be in Latin, and the people need to know and say their parts of the mass right. in Latin. That right. 
the priests have to say their breviaries in Latin. It doesn't give any exceptions either, by the way, right. unless the priest yeah. is mentally handicapped. Um, it, you know, and then it says that uh, Gregorian chant is the proper music of the liturgy. I mean, it's practically thrown out within a couple of years. It's, right. um, you know, in favor of uh, some of the worst trash that's ever been formed in a church. Uh, you could go back and point to that and say, um, hello, what about this? It doesn't matter. That was never meant to be what was going to be followed. That was meant to right. keep too many bishops that was just to be alarmed. The, yeah, you know? that was just and, dressing. Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, it, even yeah. And you mentioned like Father Somerville, Louis Bouillet, yeah. right? He has yeah. his memoirs out about the, the ridiculousness of how the Novus Ordo came together. And he was right there. And, and he was a part of that whole process, even cooperated in that whole process. And later he hated the whole yeah. thing. Uh, 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 waiter, please. Can I get another napkin? Yeah, right. I got another Eucharistic prayer to write down, and and, and then right. creating that mythology of you know that, that they put out there that oh, this is the oldest prayer in the church. It goes back to Hippolytus, the martyr oh, in the second right, century. Right, it's like, right. um, yeah, maybe about eighteen <laughs> words of it that don't even form. <laughs> um, and the rest of it words. was all made up. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, they, I was told. That. I was told. I'm trying to say this in the most without calling anyone out I'm, I'm very hesitant to try to try to make fun of people but the i was told this and this is what i believe for a while because i was taught and i would just you know i would believe what people who were my superiors would tell me and i was told that that eucharistic prayer was written on a napkin and they i was told that and so i was they didn't hide that but instead of saying that it was bad they said it showed the brilliance of bunini that he was able to come up with it on the spot like that. Like he was just so brilliant and such a holy man that he just was sitting there. He just came to him and he knew that this was the answer and he wrote it down and this created this mythology around it. And I was like, Oh wow, that's amazing. And whenever I started being, which is very interesting, I was told a lot of things that were very true about the, about the council, about the documents, about these things. And so whenever I was started being exposed to another perspective, about the exact same stories they're telling me the exact same story so i was like well you are not neither of y'all are lying to me about the actual events you are just telling me different things about the conclusions and it really changed everything for me so yeah i that's kind of amusing so last thoughts on this subject before we move on um one of the the elephants in the room is well what's going to happen to the fraternity and the institute we touched on james you touched on that a little bit earlier because hitherto they've been exempted and you saw, you know, the usual like Rarticelli and whatever coming out saying, hey, look, the fraternity got some special thing for Francis. They're going to be exempted um, for how long? You know, and that's I also see this document having, you know, more things dealing with them. Uh, and so, like, at the present, they're exempted from all this language and, and jailers of the tradition about, um, you know, you can't use a parish church. You can't use this. You can't use this. Um you know, how do you guys see this playing out for the fraternity, the institute, and any other order that's that's specifically a traditional Latin mass order? You know, I, I've said this before, and I think this is what we're we're going to see. Whatever it is that's happening now that seems favorable to the Ecclesia Day, uh, uh, you know, group or the former Ecclesia Day groups, uh, it's all going to wane very very quickly. This is just, uh, um, you know, a time biting. Uh, document you know it's to get everybody i mean there 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 have been writings in the past you know and the writings in the past from the vatican have stipulated that the fraternity uh the goal of fraternity is to someday 
basically come into the uh, fold of the Vatican II uh, ideology, you know, and we just, we just don't know what the timeline is, you know, and, and these documents go back maybe as far as uh, 20, I, I want to say 2010, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. Uh, th there is anticipation from the Vatican that sooner or later, these groups are going to have to fall into line with Vatican II. And it's, we're not just talking about uh, reading uh, the uh, lessons in the uh, vernacular or, you know, uh, or introducing, you know, some innovation here and there within the mass. We're talking about full blown out. Maybe you might even be allowed to say uh, the, the, you know, the mass as a Novus Ordo Latin, but it, there's encouragement, uh, not encouragement rather, but there, there is, uh, I'm, I'm missing a word here. But basically, the Vatican has more than hinted that that that's that's going to be the end goal. They may they, they may not have done it in this document or in the risk script, you know. But it's something that they have their sights set on. Alberto, the fate of the fraternity in the institute. Uh, there, there's a quote I think I tweeted from the Council of Trent, uh, where they say where the the council says that to so something along the lines of that to stand for truth is not only to speak the truth, but to also be opposed to error. And what we have seen is that what ended up happening with the, the fraternity was that it was born out of essentially a betrayal of Archbishop Lefebvre. Uh, there's a really, really great conference that uh, they've recently put out. And I suppose that they're, I, I, I don't think that they did it with this intent, but a lot of with a lot of the things that the different grifters out there have been saying against Archbishop Lefebvre, they are all debunked there. Uh, and one being, of course, that the society was installed in two dioceses by the time that the... And, and the two bishops that installed dioceses there in those... The two bishops from those two dioceses were part of the International Group of Fathers of the Council. So they, in a sense, knew what was coming. And so they supported Archbishop Lefebvre. And so that's, that's why when the new bishops came in, they were totally modernist bishops and they tried to suppress the, the society... Well, you can't just suppress a society that's not only in one diocese, but in, in two dioceses, which was in a cone, and I forget the exact name of the other diocese. Uh, so it dispels a lot of these different myths. And uh, absolutely, what, what they want to do is, and I'm not talking about the independent priests here and then, but uh, as institutions, they uh, serve the, the, the goals of the Vatican II Church. And they, uh, uh, even if they don't are not forced to say the 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 new mass where i've been i've been at the Austin churches uh, the diocesan the, the latin masses where they actually go against vatican II and against religious freedom and all that stuff same thing at society chapels i've never that, that i've never heard that at an institute or at a fraternity church mm. yeah so, uh, adrian uh we're from where where you're sitting uh mm -hmm. what can you see as uh the, the fate of the fraternity of the institute yeah, no, this is a uh, very interesting question because we ask this question every time something like this comes up. And honestly, I'm always surprised. I always am thinking, yeah, this is it. It's over for the Ecclesia Day communities. And then it's never over. I'm always surprised to see that they uh, continue functioning fairly as normal. But what we see is, like I said, fairly as normal. 
So we've noticed that they are chipping away a little at a time. So I would not be surprised if that's the play, gradualism. You start nipping at it a little bit because you know if you throw a bone to the Ecclesia Day communities or the former Ecclesia Day communities because Ecclesia Day doesn't exist anymore, but the Ecclesia Day communities, if you start throwing them a bone and they start acting, uh, you keep them complacent so they you don't engage the institute priests the fraternity priests and all these other smaller orders all around the united states all around the world even and you keep them complacent they're not going to get engaged in the fight instead they're just trying to bunker down and say all right we're just going to protect our little latin mass community right here and you start attacking the Dawson latin masses and all these first you divide them and then you can go after the Ecclesia Day communities because once they're divided, you've already weakened the morale, you've lost the momentum, and all these other things are happening. So it's actually a really brilliant strategy to just slowly chip away at the Ecclesia Day communities until there's nothing left. So I, that's what I think the strategy is there. So I don't think that they're going to be gotten away with in this case either. I don't think it'll happen until they've completely gotten rid of the DOS's and structure. And once that's gotten rid of, I think... Then and only then they will actually drop the hammer hard on the Ecclesia Day communities. But I do think there will be further restrictions, but it will probably be something that they're going to spin and say, oh, look, it's not that bad. We still get to do 99% of the things that we got to do after the fifth restriction. So that's my thoughts. Okay, we have to pause here real quick just to note that uh, we are here on the Restoring the Faith YouTube channel because Mike got our other channel shut down for a couple weeks. And uh, <laughs> we're also on Rumble, and we are also streaming on the Crusade Channel Radio the way it should be with our, our partners there. Go to crusadechannel.com. All right, so, um, before we make the transition to the next news article, there's um, one thing maybe to bring in because we're, we're looking at this. I was talking to, to a friend of mine last night, um. And he was expressing kind of his dismay at a lot of things that are going on. And he was, you know, describing uh, the state of uh, a Catholic he knows that, um, you know, goes to the fraternity, uh, was a good Catholic, you know, wife and kids and has raised them all in the, in, in the faith and catechized them. And he was describing this friend of his as um, almost completely losing his faith. He's just stopped and he just he can't understand how the gates of hell haven't prevailed with the things that are going on in the church now, and he's just stopped doing everything. And, and it's a really sad story. Um, as, I mean, what are we, yeah, we're at 2023. So yeah, it was about 20, 22 years ago, I was an agnostic. I was reading Nietzsche and lost my faith and, uh, you know, kept, uh, use that in, basically as an excuse for my sins, when is what I realized when I came back to the church. And somebody was praying for me. I didn't deserve to get the grace. I didn't deserve to get the faith back. Somebody was praying for me. And, and God gave me the faith back and a whole thing. Thank <laughs> So glad that he did. But I see something like that and I see, you know, I, I get it because I remember what that's like. What do you guys say to that? You know, it, how do we read the, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church when we have daily, you have all around the world that, that one we brought up earlier. If only that was like this off thing it's done here and there. I've seen it enough times. I know it happens. Um, there is uh, heresy from the pulpits. You have gay sex parties in the congregation of, uh, you know, doctrine of the faith's offices uh, hosted by a cardinal. 
uh, Coco Palmario, right? You have uh, the Pontifical Academy of Life gutted, and now it's filled with people who are pro-abortion and want to change the church's teaching on birth control and chip away at it. And its cardinal had a, a, a homoerotic mural of himself put in his titular church, right? Uh, you have uh, these off-the-cuff statements of Francis that range from uh, Molly Sonans and Offensive Piatamarium all the way up to... Uh, at least seeming heretical, we'll put it that way, um, you know, if not worse. And, you know, how do we get to, you know, where, where's the brass tacks? It, 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 when it needs to, to someone like this individual my friend was relating to. When does the gate, when do the gates of hell, how do we say the gates of hell have not prevailed? Looking for a, to strike a hopeful note, by the way, but we'll see. <laughs> James. Uh, look, looking to strike a hopeful note. Um, well, I mean, I, I've been, blessed in my my lifetime to come to uh to come to to tradition and to understand things a little bit differently than i did prior to uh a tradition you know and i think about it uh you know when i when, when i think of those uh, uh martyrs in uh japan or even um you know those people who are who are disconnected from the reality of the church and what the church was going through, uh, you know, in, in that time, I believe it was the 17th uh, century, you know, uh, the, the Japanese were without priests and they were without any sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, without the ability to uh, hear mass, you know, but yet they, uh, they prevailed. They knew what the faith was and it was a faith that had been handed down uh, to them. You know, w without any admixture of, uh, you know, what we would consider heresy or, um, it, 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 in my understanding, especially today, um, if if we're if we're given the gift of this faith that we have, it's not to, it's not to say that, uh, you know, we're special in, in, in one way, but it's this is a call to action, right? So we're being called. To, to act with this grace that we've been given. And basically we're lights to the world. We're supposed to light this, you know, we're not supposed to sit and hope that Francis reacts in a way that's gonna make us question what the church has always th thought or to uh, give us the hope. I mean, it's sad, right? You know, cause we, we are supposed to have uh, this faith and hope uh, but but somehow because of things going on in the world in the Vatican, we we think all might be lost. But when we look at that those words from the scripture, we have to remember that there have been, there have been people who've suffered, uh, you know, a lot worse than we're suffering right now, who've been called to testify, and uh, they their testimony lives because they live and they're they're in heaven. And so we, when we see the challenges that we're being faced with today. We don't have any direction from 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 the Vatican from from a pope who says he's the pope. Uh, it does not necessarily mean that the world, uh, sorry, that the that uh, uh, the gates of hell has have prevailed against the church. It just means that right now in this time there are, there are men who are acting according to, to to their own rather than God, and we have to be wary of those people and ask ourselves the more meaningful question is. You know, in the in the line of in the line of, uh, or rather, in the uh, in our time today, how can we uh, practice the faith undeterred, like those people who came before us? So that's the question I ask myself every day. You know, if there's confusion here, uh, 
how can I understand uh, the faith as it was practiced before this time? I mean, and that's sometimes what we're going to have to do. And in order for us to, 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 to live and act accordingly, we don't need to test uh, our faith by living up to the standards of the world today, but rather the standards of the church and the saints and the martyrs that came before. Yeah, that that's a that's a great question, Ryan, and uh, it really breaks my heart when I see um, in the online world. And so, when people are will argue with me, oh, there's nothing wrong with the noble order, and then you go into their profiles, and they say, "Hey, guys, pray for me. You know, I'm struggling with my faith." Blah 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 blah. And uh, that's precisely why, as I mentioned earlier, I've taken the decision that my family is simply not going to the noble order. So that's step one. That's uh, in my in my view the minimum i just what i personally do is i just avoid the noble sordo uh another thing that i do is and i suppose a lot of people get mad but just don't be afraid to laugh it things are just so ridiculous that i think all of us that are here on the show tonight uh are not afraid to laugh because it's just things just get so ridiculous that i just don't see anything wrong with laughing and and we just have to have that uh uh trade in in our in our character where we have the confidence that Christ is with us and uh, that all of this is in a sense, is just vanity with the modernist thing that they've won the day. But at the end of the day, we know that the, that as right. The question is, how do we know that the gates of hell have not, have not prevailed prevailed? Well, we know that the, that the faith of the church uh, is true and it has been confirmed, not only rebuilt by our Lord Jesus and but by many, many, many miracles. Uh, and uh, when I look into the lives of many of the people that I consider friends and I look at their beautiful families and I look at, or, or those that have vocations and I look and I see that they're living faithfully their vocations. Uh, that is to me a source of great hope. Uh, so let's just not be afraid of, of laughing and of calling things as they are. And I've, I've, I have done this myself. So I'm, I'm in a sense, in a way uh, able to speak about this, Take the take trust in providence and uh, move somewhere where your children will have access to the traditional sacraments and where it will be guaranteed. Uh, I've I've done that myself a couple of times. Yes, it does take a lot of to trust in providence, but at the end of the day, would we rather live in a maybe in a, in a one bedroom house, but secure that our family will have the faith and that we'll have the faith ourselves also, or do would we rather live in this uh, huge home? Or wherever, or with our current comfortable accommodations, and not have the true sacraments, uh, and look at the rest of the world. Let's look at the rest of the world also and see that those that are in noble sort of world, they're all, you know, the children are all feminists. The men are just not even going to church. And then let's look at the traditional families and let's keep uh, let's keep hoping that. And Men, this is so important. Looking at the beautiful things in life and keeping mental prayer. And when you get into those habits, you will realize that the face of the church is true because that will be confirmed by our Lord Jesus when when you're in prayer and you keep to the traditional catechisms. Uh, that I do believe that that will be confirmed to you, and you will have that knowledge in your heart that we have been chosen to open our eyes in this time for a reason, and it is not just so that we can uh, indulge in all the comforts of the world but also that we can maintain the faith in this time of such apostasy. Uh, but there are many things, in, there are many beautiful things in life, even in this, in such a depraved world. Leave my Xbox alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, praise be to God. We have such an opportunity 
to suffer for our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord has said to us, what did he say? He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. So what a grace that God has given to us to be able to suffer every single day in the church. Because in times past, people suffered physical evils, or you had the, they had opportunities to be physical martyrs. But in our day, we have the opportunity to be martyred every single day, a slow and agonizing death. And what will we do with that? Will we bury our head in the sand and allow ourselves to be overtaken? Or will we recognize that the enemy is surrounding us on our left, on our right, in front of us, behind us, all around us, the enemy is there. And what shall we say? Will we cower in fear or will we rise up and say the enemy is exactly where I want them? It reminds me of the fiery prayer of St. Louis de Mumford and where he said, and we great God, although there is so much glory and profit, so much sweetness and so many advantages to be gained by serving thee, shall there be so few to take up thy cause? Hardly any soldiers under thy banner, nary a St. Michael to proclaim among thy brethren in zeal for thy glory, who is like unto God. Arise, O Lord, why sleepest thou? Arise, arise, O Lord, why feignest thou to sleep? Arise in thy might, thy mercy, and thy justice to form thyself a chosen bodyguard, to keep thy house, to defend thy glory, and to save the souls bought at the price of thy precious blood, so that there may be but one fold and one shepherd, that this all may glorify thee in thy holy temple. In this temple all shall proclaim his glory. Amen. What a beautiful prayer. What an amazing prayer. Because what does St. Louis de Mumford pray in this fiery prayer? He prays that the, that the apostles, the saints of the latter times, will be greater than all the saints who came before them. Because those saints of that time will be children of Mary. They'll be so tied up with the Blessed Virgin that they will be her soldiers. They will be like unto Mary. And if being like unto Mary means to be like unto her son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us cling to Mary. She is our hope in this time of turbulence. So let us cling to her. Let us have greater devotion to her. And the only thing, if I could give just one bit of advice to St. Louis de Mumford, I would tell him, have greater devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I encourage that advice to you, no matter what your circumstance is, whether you have access to the traditional mass or you don't, whether you're stuck at a local Novus Ordo, whatever your situation is, have a greater devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and she will take you through the storm. And, and, and exactly yeah, right. and actually, yeah, let me add, let me add to that. A lot of us and many of us, I've heard this, this from a lot of people is we we're able to think clearly, especially in this storm not of our own accord, but because we are, in fact, devoted to the Blessed Mother. You know, we don't operate in our daily lives as though she were not there protecting us as a mother. And so we cry unto her, we ask her to guide, to protect us, because we don't know anything, and we don't know which way the wind is blowing. But if we hold onto her mantle, we know exactly that she will lead us to her son. We cannot be ashamed of that or try to hide that. And so this is something that we need to realize in this storm that is brewing and ha that has been brewing is the only way out of this is to, through the Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother. Mm -hmm. Like St. John Bosco's dream, you know, the church going through these turbulent times, but the Holy Eucharist and the Blessed Virgin on either yeah. side, you know, and that's and, and it, and I, you take away the mass. I'm not going to give up my faith in Christ. Take away, you know, all right, go to the Byzantine, right? Take that away too. Put in something. Oh yeah, you can't go over there. Whatever they right. end up doing. Which, which is why not, I, I mentioned, yeah, which is why faith. I mentioned, yeah, which is why I mentioned those uh, 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 Japanese, not the Japanese, uh, 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 
the martyrs per se, the Japanese who were without mm-hmm. priests for what close to 300 years, if that's right. correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they still they still remain Catholic. Mm-hmm. They did, which is amazing. I mean, how many how many Westerners could do that? Everything disappeared. Okay, we don't have any sacraments anymore now. You only have your catechisms and your, your lives of saints. Of course, they didn't even have that much lives of yeah. that. They had like right. little catechisms right. at best. And and they they learned the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Creed, and they had their their list of things they had to ask anyone purporting to be a priest to make sure it wasn't like a Protestant. Or and something. they recorded oh, their they baptisms. Had. They recorded yeah. their baptisms. Can you, you imagine did. that? And for <laughs> hundreds of years, you never. So you're in like yeah. eighteen something. You've never met a priest. You've never seen the Catholic faith practiced sacramentally in churches. But you're keeping the faith anyway. And then finally, Maximilian Colby and his Franciscans come in and they ask the questions. Okay, you're priest. And then they see mass for the first time. You imagine what that must have been like. This thing we prepared for. All Like if you got some old guy in his 90s then. So he's like, you know, through all the 1800s and all the various changes in Japanese life. And he's seen all that. And now finally these priests are here and he's seeing mass for the first time. I mean, just imagine that. Right. What that would be like. But anyways, we have to move on. So we have other issues to cover. Not a lot of time. So Okay, we had a news item uh, recently. Uh, Arkansas cops rule suicide and death of Clinton aide linked to Jeffrey Epstein, who was found shot and tied to a tree with an electrical cord around his neck, despite no sign of a weapon. And so this is kind of an interesting story. This actually happened, um, you know, last year, last May. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, updated, of course, at at different times. It's making the way around the news again. So Mark Middleton, who was a special advisor for Bill Clinton, interestingly, hasn't been in politics since about 96, has been out of it for a very long time. He's found at the Heifer Ranch in Perryville, Arkansas. The Heifer Ranch, by the way, is a charitable foundation, this property, which is linked to both the Clinton Foundation and the Gates Foundation. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we don't all go down suicide. So I've got a quick uh, on this, and then we can uh, react to this particular story. Um, Hold on a second, my system's lagging here i'm trying to get it to catch up and i do not have information southern air transport was running cargo from hong kong to columbus and it's hard to know exactly what um they were moving but a bunch of people thought it was really suspicious i think i finally figured it out and a lot of it has to do i think uh, with who Epstein was meeting with at the White House at the same time that they were getting Southern Air Transport to move over there, which is Mark Middleton. And if you're not familiar with Mark Middleton, uh, in May of this year, uh, he was found hanging from a tree at the uh, ranch of uh, an NGL called Heifer International that's tied to both the Gates Foundation and the Clinton Foundation. So that's fun. Uh, hanging from a tree with an extension cord around his neck and a shotgun blast to the chest. It ruled a suicide. Um, all photos and media taken at the scene of his death has been blocked by a judge. So um, 
Wait. That was just a couple months after the visitor logs of Middleton and Epstein at the Clinton White House in the mid-90s came out, and it was revealed that what was previously thought to have been five, sorry, five visits was really 17, 17, in less than two years. And all during this time when uh, Epstein is simultaneously involved with Southern Air Transport, which, as I mentioned earlier, had a history in Arkansas when Clinton was governor and was, you know, members of Clinton's inner circle at that time were involved in those operations. Yeah. So you start to look into Mark Middleton. Shit gets really crazy, really fast. I'll give you an example. Um, When George W. Bush became president, do you know the first time he invoked executive privilege? Uh, It was just a couple weeks before 9-11, and it was to block all documents being released to Congress about Mark Middleton, who was a Clinton staffer, not a Bush staffer. So why did the Bush family step in to protect Mark Middleton, who left the White House in 1995? Um, What kind of documents was Congress looking to get a hold of, do we know? They're related to the largely forgotten Clinton scandals of the uh, 1996 uh, re-election campaign. The, uh, sus- the, the concern about foreign espionage uh, financing of the Clinton campaign in 1996. And that shit is totally mental also. Um, and man... Um, yeah, if you start to look into that, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that the Clinton kill list is about like 34 people short of what it really should be. <laughs> My mind, like going back to Middleton, like what beans was he about to spill if they hung him and then shot him in the chest with a shotgun and just left him he- there? Why did they wait until this May to do it? I think it has to do with the fact that visitor logs about him and Epstein came out and people were going to start looking into who was Mark Middleton. And when you start going down that road of who was Mark Middleton, it gets really crazy, really fast. And then you see that the Bush is the, you know, child Bush, you know, W, W Bush steps in his first invocation of, you know, executive privilege as president is to, is to protect this guy who had resigned like five, uh, five, six ish years prior from the White House, left in February 1995. Yeah, Epstein's last visit to the White House was just before Mark Middleton left in January 1995. He stopped going when Middleton was gone because he was meeting mostly with Middleton. But his first visit, his first visit was signed off by Robert Rubin, who became Treasury Secretary and whose deputy was Larry Summers. And while Larry Summers is Robert Rubin's deputy, He's flying on Epstein's plane uh, way before he becomes president of Harvard. And another crazy thing about Robert Rubin, before he was in that position where he brought in Epstein to the White House, he was, uh, I think at that time, he was head of the National Economic Council or something like that. But before he was in the Clinton administration, Robert Rubin was head of Goldman Sachs at the exact time that Goldman Sachs uh, was taking a ton of heat because of their involvement and Robert Maxwell's illegal business activities and the theft of pension fund money and all of this stuff. Goldman Sachs intimately involved in that and Robert Rubin would have too. So the guy that, you know, was intimately involved in Robert Maxwell's financial crimes brings Jeffrey Epstein to the White House uh, on his first White House visit. On, you know. I believe 
that together we can make America great again. And with your help. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know, so that was Whitney Webb, by the way, in case anyone's wondering, you could find her on Twitter. Very good investigative journalist. I do apologize for the, the right. profanity in there. I forgot to edit that out. Right. One one thought I, I have, and people are uh, probably not going to uh, catch this, is Robert Maxwell there, who's dealing with, uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, shoot, what's his name? Um, the uh, uh, Treasury. Uh, Ruben. Yeah, who's dealing with Ruben is Ghislaine Maxwell's father. Mm-hmm. So and he was an MI6 agent. That's, that's, that's exactly right, Ryan. And people don't understand how deep all of this goes. And if someone like uh, Clinton is... Well, it, well, let me take people back. There was a whole drug-running scheme back in Arkansas when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, and he was working for the CIA in the sense that there was an operation going on where drugs were being shipped left and right. And there had to do with Washington and Arkansas and places around Arkansas and and around. This is really absolutely bizarre. It seems conspiratorial, but this is actually hundred percent true. Now Clinton has gotten himself in a lot of trouble. First of all, (laughs) uh, first of all, he's put himself in a situation where uh, he married Hillary and Hillary just does not know any mercy. And uh, uh, someone like Hillary, for instance, has has been uh, known to have a very short leash. And if you cross someone like her, there's no telling when or where you're going to see your end. There is a gentleman by there was a gentleman by the name of um, Vince Foster, I believe his name. Uh, This this will give you an indication of what's happening with this story. This Vince Foster who worked for Clinton was found uh, to have, well, he, the, the note at the scene of crime was that uh, he shot himself. And what is more ridiculous about that statement is that he shot himself twice in the head. This person who just got found hanging from a tree shot himself in the chest. I don't know if it was, after or before he decided to hang himself. And this is how ridiculous this whole thing goes. And this automatically puts you in the position of going uh, or of saying to yourself, which you would be correct in, in insinuating this, that this is actually not something that happened <laughs> uh, by coincidence. You know, so we have to stop being able to thread a lot of things here and not be ashamed that we're threading these things because this is actually what's happening is there is a conspiracy to, to silence the truth from coming out. This cons- conspiracy to silence uh, you know, people who actually would, would like to, to, to at least have some pressure relieved uh, from you know, the burden of carrying something like this for, for so long. You know, people want to come out and tell the truth, but they're being silenced before they even get a chance to do any of this. You know, uh, Epstein didn't get a chance. They didn't get a plea deal. You know, why is Ghislaine Maxwell more special than uh, Epstein? What has Ghislaine Maxwell promised, you know, through her, through her, through her, uh, uh, you know, through her uh, connection to the to MI6? Mm-hmm. So that, these are the questions mm-hmm. I have. 
Right. And in that, and who knows what evidence she's got tucked away somewhere that they don't know about. Sure. That's exactly. a bargaining chip, which is why right. she was not found uh, much as, as Epstein was. Which, which is interesting. You, you bring that point up, Ryan, because guess what? I'm, I'm guessing Ghislaine Maxwell has everything that, Jeff, uh, that uh, Jeffrey Epstein would have released. He probably handed her a lot of documents and said, Ghislaine Maxwell, you hold on to these documents in case I die. You can release this. But Ghislaine Maxwell is a very smart woman. And when she say, hey, guys, I'm not giving any of this up. It's, it's all hidden. And you cannot uh, kill me because if you do, then I'll release all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's probably what's going on. And you got this situation where she's being convicted of trafficking to whom? Where's the list? Why can't no we names. see the list? No, all sealed away. You can't know that. No, no, no. You can't know. Even though like, we have Bill Gates enthusiastically taking trips on Jeffrey Epstein's plane. Bill Gates has 20 private jets. He probably has 100. Who knows? Why does he so desperate to get on Jeffrey Epstein's private plane? And then the connections with the Gates Foundation and MIT and Jeffrey Epstein. And, and that's why I, I do um, you know, recommend like Whitney Webb's work on this because there's a lot of connections that she pulls out that um, you know, a lot of connections other people have not made that are really important with the story. So Alberto and Adrian, let's bring you in. I don't know how much you do or don't know about the story. What, what does it look like to you? Electrical cord wrapped around the guy's neck, shotgun blast the chest, ruled a suicide. Yeah, uh, well, I think, th I think there's pretty good uh, evidence as far as we know to say that Jeffrey Epstein and friends are, are in a way connected to the intelligence community. Uh, they... What it seems to me is that what they, they do is uh, lure you in. If you start hanging out with the elites, they get you into this <laughs> into this island. It just sounds so dystopian and ridiculous, but it's it's what happened. They lure you into this island, then you get there, and uh, we know how bad the world is. And so then, little by little, they start getting more dirt on you. And by the time that you are in a position uh, to, in a sense, be a little bit more public about about your life, which is what we see with with Trump and with all these politicians that were at the, at the island, then they already have all the dirt on you. Uh, so again, if if anybody thinks that you can just vote your way out of this situation, <laughs> yeah. I just don't know what to say. And also, I mean, it's worth noting, and I've, I've noted it before, is that Trump uh, signed a bill into law which made it so that the federal government does not have to report actual numbers, any branch of the federal government. So any dirty money, any, you know, backroom stuff, they don't have to report it anymore. They don't like have the to show anything on the books. And once you do that, you don't need all the third party agencies you've got laundering money and doing all these things. So you don't need somebody like Jeffrey Epstein anymore. Now he's a liability because he knows too much. And I'm convinced with Maxwell, it's because she's got something tucked away somewhere because she was smarter or, the, you know, her Mossad and, and MI6 connections to her father that that connect to all these other elements that make it so that she's, she's valuable enough not to kill. And so it could be as long as, she, in, in, you know, she's going to play ball. And so, Adrian, your thoughts on this before we move to the last segment? Yeah, the first thing I thought is uh, I don't think I want to say anything because they just got James and he just finished talking. He's already gone. They they got him. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but the, the big thing here, though, is what everybody's pointing out there everybody's saying oh it's clearly not a suicide this is not incompetence this is intentional they're sending a message these people are not incompetent they're not oh i was trying to make it look like a suicide but i shot him twice and then hung him whoops uh no that's in that's intentional they're trying to send a message saying look 
if you engage in uh, investigations here, if you know too much, or for you guys who do already know too much, and you were thinking about speaking out about this, well, just be aware. We can murder someone. We can, sorry, sorry. We can suicide someone, <laughs> and we can make it as obvious as we want, and it's still going to be ruled a suicide, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. That's the message they're sending. So it is very concerning, and I just want to say that I have no information that leads to no arrest of any of the Clintons. Right. And there, uh, oops, I forgot to reset it. There won't be any, <laughs> that's not going to happen. They're ensconced in the elite. It's not, there's two tiers of justice here, or maybe three. And then like actors, of course, get their own tier of justice. So, like nothing's going to happen to Alec Baldwin, even though something should happen to Alec Baldwin. And if it was any of us, we would have been in jail from day one, but no, no, it's okay. You know, because again, there's two tiers of justice in this country and it's, uh, yeah, you're never going to see, you know, anything come out of that um at all unfortunately so but that is the way of the world and that's also why i think you know belief in hell is important because yeah they might get away with it in this life and even uh, saint robert bellarmine one of his spiritual works says sometimes we see the wicked prosper and they seem mm -hmm. to live happy lives and it, sometimes it's best to think of it as god's giving them a mercy by letting them enjoy something in this life mm -hmm. because their eternity is not going to be so joyful City of God as well talks about how mm -hmm. nations get pu punished in this life because they have no soul and will not be punished in the next. Whereas man can get away with crimes in this life because they will be punished in the next. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So meanwhile, while this is going on, Zelensky, our, 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 uh, our actor friend who's uh, stashing away tons of cash for his hookers in blow. He is uh, calling for nuclear war. What НАТО унеможливлювати застосування Росією ядерної зброї. Але що важливо, я ще раз звертаюсь до міжнародної спільноти. Як це було до 24-го? Превентивні удари, щоб вони знали, що з ними буде, якщо вони застосують, а не навпаки. Meanwhile, uh, this is also Zelensky. not gay. I have relationships with women. Sex with men. And I got news for you. I need you gay. Oh, I gotta stop because NBC started to pull the copyright on that. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> anyway, so that's Zelensky. That's, and that's who Biden, of course, went to go see. Um... Meanwhile, you've got, uh, you know, all this money going to Ukraine. He's spending all this time in Ukraine. And uh, yeah, what we know for certain here. tonight is that there is chaos in America's domestic airspace. That has never happened before. It's not a good sign. There's chaos in the ground to a lot of it. Ten, ten days ago, for example, a train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. That's about 50 minutes outside Pittsburgh. Apparently, there was some kind of mechanical failure. We still don't have details on what that failure was. Of course, we don't. We do know about 50 cars derailed. At least 10 of them were carrying thousands of gallons of highly dangerous chemicals, 
including vinyl chloride, which causes cancer. Watch. It started with a thunderous boom, and then a huge plume of thick black smoke that could be seen for miles. This was the moment officials in East Palestine, Ohio, had been planning for. A controlled release of toxic chemicals from several train cars at the site of a derailment, one that has forced thousands from their homes. And all the way around, everybody's frustrated and like to go home. The decision to conduct a controlled release came just days after the train derailed in the rural Ohio community, sparking a massive fire. As the blaze continued to burn through the weekend, concerns quickly escalated. That's because five of the train cars carried the chemical vinyl chloride, an unstable material with the potential to explode, shooting deadly shrapnel up to a mile away and releasing toxic fumes into the air. We don't want to second guess anybody. We got to assume everybody involved was doing their best under a highly stressful situation. But did you see that mushroom cloud? That was caused on purpose. And maybe there's a good reason, again, no second guessing. But what it means is those clouds of toxic smoke flew up and out. And that toxic smoke almost immediately began killing animals. Dead fish washed up on shore. As one hazardous materials specialist put it, we basically nuked a town with chemicals. So then representatives from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, arrived to restore calm. Yes, an EPA spokesman explained... Chemicals from the derailed train did enter the local watershed, and yes, they did kill fish. But the drinking water supply remains totally safe. The fish are dead, but go ahead and fill your thermos and brew some coffee. Everything's fine. Now, we don't... Everything's fine, and the politicians, of course, they're, well, they're going out to, to put the blame on somebody else. We also looked at... Um what the danger was from a controlled release, which is what the railroad felt should be done. Um, <clears throat> we then made the decision uh, to go ahead with the, the second option, which was the controlled release. Our environmental teams remain in East Palestine uh, where they're working directly uh, with the railroad and others to ensure that the site is thoroughly cleaned up uh, with no shortcuts. Uh, this yeah, so it's uh, her fault. The train company told me to do it. So we we nuked chemically nuked this town, and um, meanwhile Biden's giving a bit more millions to uh, Zelensky, uh, Alberto. I saw a video earlier. Uh, supposedly the the president of Spain was in uh, in uh, in Ukraine as well, and they're doing all the photo ops on all of this uh, destroyed places. And so that just got me thinking a little bit earlier today, coincidentally, uh, how real is, is all of this that we are seeing? And then we, of course, see the chemicals being released into Ohio. And that does make me, with all the destruction, as Tucker Carson was outlining there, it does make me uh, second guess and say do, and think to myself, do we really want to live in a society where this is even possible, where we're causing so much destruction to the environment? And because there is definitely a place in, in the in the right wing to care for the environment most definitely uh, but it's just been so co-opted by the the pope francis is uh, out there that we can't even talk about all these solutions without getting even shut down by the republicans so you you are being a leftist whatever whatever but do we really want to live in a world where this is even possible uh, i i i'm not sure i want to 
<clears throat> yeah, uh, Adrian, let's take a look at this. Wow. Look at all that. Look at it. It's all in the bottom of the creek bed. Now look at it. EPA says it's safe. It says it's safe to drink the water. It's safe to breathe. Don't worry. It's okay, everybody. Wait a minute. Didn't they say after not after 9-11, it was perfectly safe to breathe the air? You're for the first responders. You're totally fine. And yet you get all these first responders that were there that are dying again and again and again because of um, all the stuff they inhaled, which the government refused to acknowledge even existed or do anything for their medical costs. It's like, yeah. Funny that whenever you bring the government in to fix a disaster, they uh, make more disasters. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, the first thing I have to say is, uh, how dare you? You have stolen my dreams in my childhood <laughs> with your empty words, yet I am one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. Where's Greta Thunberg at? Where's she right? at? Don't uh, mix your Greta is, now. People are, <laughs> people are suffering. People are suffering. Where is, where is Greta? Where are all the people? This is really bad. And now our, their water is the same color as the pride flag. Uh, that should not happen. This is not the color that water is supposed to be. I don't know why I need to tell people this. And this is a big deal. I cannot stress this enough. I, every single morning, we've been praying um, for the people in Ohio because this is, the, this is the biggest disaster in my lifetime. Granted, I'm not that old. However, this is a major deal. There and what what have we seen? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, you had mentioned that Joe Biden goes off to Ukraine, and what happens? You, he comes back, and what does he do? He doesn't do anything to help. That's for sure. I, he comes over and he leaves, and this is what we get. We get how much money was given over to the people in uh, Ohio. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing was given to the people in Ohio. And it took Donald Trump coming to Ohio for anyone to actually think to do anything. And then we have Pete Buttigieg showing up, which uh, is our favorite uh, rainbow player. Uh, he is uh, probably very much uh, a big fan of the, the color of the water there, I'm sure. But this <laughs> is a sure. big deal. It's very important. And yeah. we need to keep praying for these people. And honestly, mm -hmm. if someone knows how on earth we can help, I would love to know because mm -hmm. I want to help these people, but I have no idea how to even begin to begin to even fathom how to fix a problem like this. This is going to destroy yeah. Ohio Absolutely. and probably this, all the surrounding states. Yeah, and Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, too. And Well, here's Buttigieg. He doesn't seem to think it's all that much of a trouble. Uh, look, rail safety is something that, uh, uh, that has evolved a lot over the years, but there's clearly more that needs to be done because uh, while this – uh, horrible situation ha has gotten a particularly high amount of attention. There are roughly 1,000 cases a year of a train derailing. And what's he done about it? Nothing. And then here he is again. So what I tried to do was balance two things. My desire to be involved and engaged and on the ground, which is uh, uh, how I am uh, generally. 
Whoops. All right, to ended it early. All right, fine, whatever. He likes choo-choo trains. We he, yeah. he told us that when he was first uh, hired. <laughs> and lots of vacations. And what's interesting is they turn around and they blame Trump. Of course, because Trump went there and embarrassed them. And so they're like, yeah, Trump deregulated everything, and that's why all this happened. There's still regulations in place that could have stopped it if it wasn't for incompetence or potentially a planned uh, thing to happen. And then there's other train derailments too. Arizona, Nebraska, Texas, Detroit, all carrying hazardous chemicals yeah. that have all leaked, except uh, locally they didn't blow those up and put those in the atmosphere, but um, in the environment. But it's like, <coughs> all right, we're going to blame Trump. They got the view, and they're, of course, predictably getting there. Yeah, we're blaming Trump. Wait a minute. Who has been transportation secretary for three years? If it's all Trump's fault, what have you done to fix it in three years? I mean, even doing the stuff that might not have, you know, stopped this, but you know, not might have shown fruit, except for, you know, a couple of years down the road, like fixing railways, improving our crumbling infrastructure. Uh, he's on another vacation with his uh, non husband. Come on, Ryan. In and defense of Pete Buttigieg. You say he's been the secretary for three years, but in reality, he's only been on the job for like seven days. So you got to. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still when I see his name, I still want to call it booty gig. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, but but it, it's it's obnoxious that I mean whatever. But is out and proud is in, it, in the sexuality. Just is doing the job. He has not done the job, but he's still there because well he's gay, so we got to you know we can't fire him. Well, I'm hoping that at the very least. Uh, that he would uh, get that that dude, what's his name, who keeps stealing luggages and putting on <laughs> women's clothing. Uh, if that's not the job of the, of the uh, Secretary of Transportation, I don't know what is. Uh, mm -hmm. He should really be getting that guy to return the clothing of that lady that's in my backyard. She's uh, in, in the Houston area. That's where I'm located. Right. And she uh, she found out that this dude stole uh, her clothing. But yeah, this, this really is concerning. I was listening to, I think it was Tim Pool was talking mm -hmm. about how the infrastructure for our our um, trainways are incredibly outdated and they're overrun to the point that it is going to be like it's going to it's falling apart. Uh, it was not Tim Pool. It was the Epic Times guy. I'm forgetting his name. Oh, yeah. uh, Joshua Phillips, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but he was talking about that. And it is a huge deal because right. all these trains are going to it's going to continue to get worse and worse. And us seeing this happen um, is only going to continue seeing it more and more. It's not just a what do they call it? A spotlight bias where we focus on stories and therefore we think it's happening more. It actually is happening more. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's going to continue happening more because that's exactly what they want to happen, I think. And um, you think about it, uh, you know, scorched earth policies. Oh, you want to get out in the wilderness, get off the grid, raise your animals, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, you be, you know, self, you know, self-sustaining so you can avoid the, our net zero, you know, reconfiguration of the economy. Well, you know, we're not going to let you do that. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen. So I walked up to the cage and this this is what I found. Amanda Brashears was going to feed her five hens and rooster this morning when she discovered them all lifeless, practically in the same position with no signs of a predator entering their enclosure. I'm beyond upset and quite panicked because this they may be just chickens, but they're family. 
Brashear says her chickens were alive and well yesterday. She believes the smell following the detonation of the train carrying chemicals that derailed in East Palestine is to blame for her bird's sudden death. How do you raise animals when they do that to you? You know, which, which I think, uh, you know, it goes to Brother Martin's point a few uh, rundowns back in his unpopular opinion, talking about how, yeah, you're, they're not going to let you, you know, do the Benedict Ops. Just go to McDonald's. Just go to McDonald's, get some, get some Zogslop. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, well, yummy. We've been on for a while and uh, we've talked about it. I've still got tons and tons of video for all kinds of things, but really, right now, it's time to grift. Awesome. All right, I'll, guess I'll start then. Uh, so I don't have anything to grift. Uh, wait, actually, I do have something to grift, um, but it's not really for me. Uh, our, and our, our quarterly, rather, uh, Shareathon is coming up for the Guadalupe Radio Network. So if you want to support the Guadalupe Radio Network, that's coming up pretty soon. Donate to the GRN. Tell them Adrian sent you. I'd be very, very grateful. Or you can also just uh, subscribe to Catholic Drive Time and Catholic Conversations. Catholic Conversations is my personal podcast where I talk about philosophy, theology, and piety. And Catholic Drive Time is the radio channel, a radio show that I'm uh, the host of across the Guadalupe Radio Network. And on Catholic Drive Time on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, Facebook, and so on and so forth. So you can find me there. And there we talk about culture, politics, news uh, from a Catholic perspective. Kind of like the rundown, but less um, less rundowny. <laughs> so those are the that's the I think that's it. Nothing for me personally. But if you want to send me money, just feel free. Just mail it to me. All right, so I'm going to grift uh, this uh, amazing book. Here we go. The Seraphic Order. It is a pretty chunky Holy book. Holy uh, But we're, when we were talking about how we keep, how do we keep the faith in these times, this uh, book by Mediatrix Press, by, by your own Ryan Grant, uh, really has helped me tremendously to look at the lives of the saints and uh, understand that may maybe not in a... In a universal way but a lot of the saints have faced crises in their own lives because uh, their bishop was doing this or that or or their parish priest was doing this or that and they kept the faith and they fought uh truly by trusting providence so don't miss out on this book it's a, it's a chunky one but uh you can use it with your children you can use it to catechize them you can use them to teach them about all sorts of saints from the franciscan order that's my grift <laughs> okay so um so an update on my wife i put uh, up on my twitter uh just a couple of days ago that uh, we, we went back to the er actually i put back we, we haven't done a rundown since then is that um her diagnosis is terminal and that she's uh you get a metastatic spread of the the cancer and you know without a miracle uh, she, you know, got about six months according to the doctors, but oftentimes they're wrong. And so we are praying for a miracle. We are hoping for a miracle. And I, I put on my Twitter feed, I don't have anything up ready to go right now for it, but there is a, uh, a venerable servant of God. Um, even for you said, if you can't just out there, you can pray for him too. Cause he was ordained in 1929. So, you know, he's a real priest. Um, but if, if for everyone else included father, uh, Aloysius 
Alicurie. I've got it on my Twitter. I've got the prayer for uh, a miracle at his intercession. Um, and everything I've, I've got about the, he personally knew some members of my wife's family. And everything I've got is he was an absolutely solid priest and he absolutely kept the faith after, you know, after the council and after so many things happened. So he, um, in a, you know, it was really good. He did perform miracles even in his own lifetime. So um, the uh, one of the, uh, the vice postulator for his cause actually came up and visited us and gave us a lot of material. He bla- and also he was a solid priest too. Um, absolutely aware of everything that's going on. Really, really good guy. Um, and so he blessed Sarah with the uh, crucifix that Father Aloysius had, which actually had a relic of Padre Pio in it, uh, which is great. Uh, I had to take Sarah back to the ER because of uh, instruct- a bowel inst- obstruction, which they're they're working on now, and she might need another surgery, unfortunately. And fortunately, she's resting now, and that, that's one you know thing at least that that uh, you know they've admitted her, and, and you know she can at least rest, and and so that's a positive thing. Hopefully, we can get intravenous nutrition that's one thing that's been difficult uh to get because uh, the medical system like well why do we want to do that it's like uh because she's dying because she can't eat anything and i could go through all those travails and i don't want to and i don't want to impugn um various medical people that are at least trying to do their job and trying to you know, help even if um you know we might not agree with th- various things and so um and always i'm always hard on medical people so anyway I've, there's a give send go that i have set up and uh, where I had my relative, one of my relatives set up and it's um, Father Ripiger put it out there on YouTube. You might have seen that. And I had it on my Twitter. It's actually got I'm actually amazed. I didn't think we'd get anywhere near what we're getting. And so uh, which has increased our options, increased our treatment options. Uh, things that were absolutely off the table now are actually potentially on the table. So that's a positive. So just please keep praying for my wife and please keep praying, uh, you know, for a miraculous healing. You know, and it is like so much of it, I, I, I can't I can't deal with it right now. I've just got to put it down, uh, you know, how I feel about things just to try to manage everything. And it's, you know, it's been a lot, but um, I've got to go back to turn that off. I'll put that in the YouTube chat so you can see it. Um, so anyway, so that, uh, yeah, that's that's my grift instead of the, the press, which actually the book Alberto, uh, you know, put up there. Oh, thank you, Mrs. C for putting that up. Thank you. Uh, the book that Alberto is showing, I'm actually back ordered right now, but I, I have it on order <laughs> coming in. So if you want to order it, it, it should be coming in around. I've got another couple cases of those coming in. So I would uh, read it, it, but I don't read Francis. Book, um, in a wonderful book, and it is the traditional one. So some, somebody actually wrote me on that one, say, Hey, why don't you have Maximilian Colby and, and Solanas Casey and Padre Pio? Why aren't they in here? It's like, Well, the book was written in 1962. Father Casey may, or it was even before that, it was like 59, one of the first editions of it and it was like a um a reworking of an older book uh, Pavarello's round table and uh the uh, father Habig just did this wonderful job just just making including all sorts of franciscan saints and the um father casey may very well have actually read that book and so that's why he's not in it this is published before he was dead and, and that would fall to me really to add to write things to add to it and i was like how can I add to this? How can I make this better? Um, and so I just decided it was just best not to try to add people in because it's like, I, I don't have half the talent that Father Habig did. And um, they reworked it, in, you know, in the eighties as a new one, which is far deficient compared to that one, you know, and so many that were taken out. So many of the prayers were much more lackluster than that one. So that's why we went for the traditional one. Of course, in the 83 one, 
you know, they, they've got it it's under copyright. This one wasn't. So uh, it worked perfectly that way. But uh, well, what's really cool about that book, Ryan, is that it includes, as I mentioned, a lot of prayers and meditations. Mm -hmm. So if you really wanted to, you could take that book to to your daily mass, et cetera, et cetera, and, yeah. and actually, uh, go off of the meditations there. So that's what, one thing that I, now, that I really like. Now, if you really wanted to be a, a real Catholic, you would actually get his uh, biography of of Jordan of Saxony and Albert of Great and St. Dominic. Yeah. Um, so if you if you were going to be a real Catholic, you'd get those instead. So, so just yes. throwing that out there. So, all right. And now we've come to the point everyone's been waiting for. And now, the moment you've been waiting for. Prepare to be mesmerized. Get on your tinfoil hats. Get out your pies for opinions more unpopular than an alpha male at a gender studies retreat. It's the Rundown Zone Unpopular Opinions Segment. That's hilarious. All right, Alberto, what do you got? Oh, no. Oh, no. I was not prepared to go first. Let me see. And I, right, and I, Adrian, I, what you got? Okay. <laughs> I'll, give a I'll, I'll give Alberto a chance to think of something. I got something. Um, well, first and foremost, I think that's hilarious, the intro. I never I haven't seen it. I always listen to the podcast version. So that's the first time I'm seeing it. And the uh, we have actually have a tinfoil Beretta inside of our in our office from the Catholic Drive Time team <laughs> office. So I think that's really funny. But anyway, so uh, unpopular opinion. I figured I'd go with this one because I got a lot of backlash from this. And in fact, I was contacted by some people that um, basically were like, just so you know, we are we were actively not inviting you to come be our speaker because of this opinion. And so I was like, oh, I didn't realize this was such a big opinion. I kind of just tweeted it out kind of half heartedly and didn't really think that people were going to freak out about it. But it touched a nerve, so I did an entire show about it today. I have a response because I am petty like that. And so the the topic, what I said was, hospice care tends to be sanitized murder. So I did a whole show about it where I talked about it for like 30 minutes today. Um, our show is 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, across the Guadalupe Radio Network, plugging it again, uh, grifting. But the we <laughs> the idea here is hospice care. They encourage you to euthanize your family members they encourage you to give them morphine because they say that you need to make them comfortable and then they try to uh then they try to push the idea of voluntarily stopping eating and drinking so that way they die quicker especially since hospice care requires you to die within six months that's a requirement to get onto hospice care is that you have to die within six months so it gives them incentive to do so to talk about this whole thing there and also it's a kind of a hatred of suffering because yes it's okay in certain circumstances to take morphine at least a degree of it but at the end of our lives we want our wits upon us because we want to be prepared to die well because we talk about dying a good death but what do we mean by good if what we mean by good is a lack of suffering then that's the opposite of good because like our Lord said, going back to what we talked about earlier, 
We must take up our cross daily and follow him. And at the end of our life, what a great opportunity to offer up our sufferings for the manifold problems in the church today, for our brothers and sisters, our wives, our husbands, our children, our grandchildren who have left the faith at the end of our lives is the most suffering we'll ever experience. And we have the opportunity to offer those sufferings, the salvation of souls, the liberty and exaltation of Holy Mother Church, and for our friends, family, and benefactors. And let's not squander that as many people tend to do because of hospice care. And that's something that, you know, we've had to look at too, because we were, you know, recommended to hospice care um, when Sarah got the diagnosis. And that that they basically explained it uh, not quite so directly, but that's basically what they said is like, we're here to manage your death. That's what we're here to do. And it might, it, it didn't start out that way. It, you know, it, it, you know, desperately needs some kind of hospice care that, that comes from a Catholic standpoint and not this kind of, yeah, we're just going to give you drugs. Yeah, it used to not be this way. It used to not be this way. Right. Whenever I was doing research on this topic, it used to be really, really good. And the nuns used to run these hospices and they would give authentic real life end of life care. And they exist out there. I've been told some people were telling me that they have experienced something like that. So maybe Ryan, you'll be able to find it and promote them to, to people because yeah. we do, we do need good hospice care. It we is do. something that we need. Right. But like always, you know, you have people that for whatever reason, <laughs> they're good. I mean, but it's the internet, you know, you say anything and uh, there's always someone that's going to come tear you down. You, no matter, even if you say two plus two equals four. So Alberto, what you got? All right. So my popular opinion today is that tr the majority of trats are out there are not really very different at all from the average godless American. Uh, this country offers us a lot of comforts and the uh, majority of us take them. And uh, at the end of the day, when you actually have a certain dealing with a traditionalist, with an average traditionalist, or with a godless American, there's really no difference. There we go. Short and sweet. Man, James lucked out. James he never has an unpop ready. He always manages to scoot out. So, all right. Um, so my unpopular opinion this week um, is that... Uh, Father Ripiger's right. <laughs> and... Uh, not just because I've been his friend for 15 years, but uh, he's right because he, in terms of uh, exorcist stuff and other things is, um, you know, he was trained by exorcist. He didn't look to get into it. He was asked to help. And, and then, you know, priest saw he seemed okay and then got him into more stuff. And next thing you know, he's being asked to do it by diocese. And that's how he led a lot of exorcists. It's um, apprentice work. But then you always get backlash from, priests that uh, don't have any kind of training in this area. They might have read something in theology or, or whatever. Then they start spouting stuff and then like, well, wait a minute, you, you're contradicting St. Thomas on this point now. Uh, there's another priest I saw. I said, there's no such thing as curses. St. Thomas talks about curses. What are you talking about? It's like the, the whole, you know, the, there's, there's so much there that you don't deal with if you're not an exorcist, if you're not a trained exorcist, if you're not um, you know, constantly doing that work and you're not learning things. And of course, you learn things also by experience and things at work, things that you have to break. And, and Father Ripper has written whole books on these subjects. You know, he's got Dominion, which is for the ladies. He's got another one that's just for priests that you can get. And he's not the only one, too. I mean, so in general, uh, my and it is increasingly, it seems, an unpopular opinion is that exorcists are more competent to, to 
help people uh, in, you know, deal with the effects of demonic activity. They're more competent in teaching people how to avoid superstition and, uh, you know, with demonic activity and other things in, in the various prayers of the church. And they're, you know, that doesn't mean they're infallible by any stretch, but uh, they're more competent in this area than people that have studied this or that in, uh, you know, some, you know, some tract or whatnot, and they decide to take issue and haven't even read the book, you know, and so many other things. And so I know that, you know, there's lots of people, you, know, you saw a lot of that blow up on uh, Twitter this week and other things like that, but that's my unpopular opinion. So, Ryan, what, what's really funny about that is that they never cite any source. They just say he's wrong, period, end of the story. Right. All right, let's let's Keeps go ahead and cite some theologians and, you know, perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure Father Ripperger himself would say, yeah, sure, prove me wrong. Show me where in the tradition I'm actually wrong on this thing. Right. Fair enough. But they always say, Oh, he's wrong, and they they won't provide any they won't even provide any examples, any specific examples yeah. of where he's wrong. And and the biggest one they want to take issue with are things like generational spirits. So in in his book, so it's like it's true enough. There's no one guy you can go to and find the quote. Yes, there are generational spirits. Okay, see here it is. It's it's rather drawn from the fact of hierarchies, and angels had roles and demon have roles and demons had roles that they're now inverted. And that's the thing is that everything on the demonic side is an inversion of what happens on, you know, the angelic side and on the side of the church. And so generational spirits are essentially that they're the inversion of angels that had a job in directing the, the progress of, you know, salvation on this and that, that because they fell, they're guiding the opposite in regard to nations or peoples or even races or that sort of thing. And so you do have these spirits and, and exorcists have dealt with these kind of things and done this and had success. And I think that's part of, uh, you know, because everything is up to how God and our lady directs it in terms of healing people from the demonic. And I think the other thing too, is that people think that you're saying that you can't be saved if you have this demonic thing and, and, never get worried. and there is over sens sensationalism of the, demonic like everyone's pointing out oh wow there's this russell crowe movie coming out on father and morth and i'm like eh, it's probably not going to be that good because it's probably going to be over sensationalized and you think of so many movies like the exorcist and its miserable sequels um the you know even exorcism of emily rose is heavily sensationalized to make it sexy to make it cool to make it something we got to go watch and and anything of the demonic should be treated with a, a good degree of respect and a good degree of distance by anyone who shouldn't have anything to do with it I don't know if this is a Hispanic thing or not, but um, maybe Alberto could tell me if he experienced a similar thing growing up. But my mom, I, like I never, obviously Father Ripperger didn't become popular until fairly recently, relatively recently. But growing up, my mom would forbid anything related to the demonic, anything that mentioned magic, anything related to that. And I grew up believing that these things were real and it didn't come from Father Ripperger. It came from tradition uh, my mom couldn't tell you well it says this in the bible or the denzinger says this or it says over here by this saint over here and she just knew it because that was just the experience of catholics we mm -hmm. we experienced the, those things happening in our lives and people we know's lives and our family's lives we witness these things and so we know they're true so the question is how do you answer them uh, you can explain them away and say it's all just things that can be naturally explained or it's the more clear and simple answer. It's the demonic. Mm -hmm. And if, uh, you know, if you've been around, if you've traveled and such things, uh, you know that 
uh, you know, these things are real. I mean, you got all kinds of tale and, and things that happen in voodoo, things that happen in Haiti, for example. Um, you know, it, it, it's real. That kind of people do invoke the demonic and they do it for either because they're going to get power or they're going to get certain, whatever it happens to be. Um, and the demons do respond if God allows them to act in a certain way. And, and that's the thing that people have to understand, too. It goes right back to a story of St. Francis, where St. Francis is praying in the Port Siancula. And these two demons come, and they, they manifest visually in horrific forms. They drag him out, and they beat him. They physically beat him because he's praying you know, with so much intensity that all everything the devil wants to do is in shambles. But Francis just, they're literally beating him, and he's, he's, his physical body is taking an absolute beating. And according to the chroniclers, and he says, you know, whatever, he starts laughing and, and they're mad. And they say, why are you laughing? He says, because you can't do anything to me. If it's God's will for you to kill me, then you're going to kill me. And that's fine. And if not, then you can't hurt, hurt me. So whatever, keep going. And, uh, you know, as the, as the, the, the authors relate, uh, St. Bonaventure or, um, or, uh, Thomas Asalan, I'm not sure which one. They say that every strike was more painful to the demons than it was to him. Because anything in the demonic, it's ultimately if God allows it. And if he allows it, that's because it's going to manifest his glory in some way. And that's why, too, it's like you need to have like a caution about anything that involves in that. But you also don't need to have an unhealthy fear of it, too. And people act like just just some exorcist coming out and trying to warn people about things. Oh, he's getting people unhealthy fear of these things. No. He's educating people in, in other exorcists too. They're educating people about it. But that's that's the problem though. When you get, I, I don't know if it's because you're stuck in an academic box and you're just thinking, oh, that's ridiculous, or, or what what the actual reason is. I don't want to lampoon anyone and, and, and call them bad people or bad priests or anything. Alberto will do it. That's what, right. What, what, well, I'll leave when, that to you because you do the spicy stuff on Twitter. <laughs> this, is, this is so funny. When when I was a little kid in my catechism lessons, <laughs> they, they told us that if we did the sign of the cross wrong. Like just out of out of laziness or something that we would get possessed. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I'm, we, I need to, I need to go to bed. Uh, the right. one real quickly, the the thing that Father Ripperker did for a lot of people, including myself, was we had a lot of these ideas of that were in a sense there was a lot of superstition that was related to it, so mixed with a lot of things that are true and a lot of superstition mixed in with it about how the demonic like if you make the sign of the cross wrong you'll get possessed like obviously if you do that you're not going to get possessed but these other things they are real and so what father ripperger really did was explain it systematize it and be able to distinguish reality from falsity and when it comes to these topics and it's been a huge benefit and it's did the exact opposite of what a lot of these priests are saying and his critics are saying it's the exact opposite because Many people like myself, like my family, like my mother, many people, faithful Catholics have always been told these things. Now we get an explanation. Now we can tell, okay, this one is true. This one's not true. This one we don't know, but this is probably the safe thing to do. So I praise be to I'm I'm praise be to God. I am very grateful for all the Ripper. They, they, they just get so this is my last comment. They just get mm -hmm. so triggered, probably because he doesn't like Harry Potter and, and yeah. his name, but look at this. <laughs> Anytime I've gone into somebody's house, no, nobody has just one Disney thing. They like their whole the whole house is covered in them, and mm -hmm. they and the the whole family is just totally disordered. So look at that. Make that observation next time you go into somebody's house. They're gonna be disordered. It's gonna be something disordered, and it, this is gonna be plastered all over. So that's probably why they get so triggered. Could be. All right, everyone. Thank you for watching. This is the rundown. We'll see you next time. I have two shotguns.
in my home. They're locked in a safe. There's a metal gun case. We live in an area that's wooded, somewhat secluded. And I said, Jill, if there's ever a problem, just walk out on the balcony and fire two blasts outside the house. Black shotgun. Black shotgun. You don't need machine gun. You don't need 30 rounds. Black shotgun. Buy a double metal shotgun. No, you don't need a flamethrower. And you don't need a tank. And you don't need an AR-15. Scare those thugs away. No, and I don't need a grenade launcher. I don't need an F-15. There's just one thing I need to do. And they'll stay away from me. Fire two blasts outside the house. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun, baby. You don't need machine guns. You don't need a machine gun. You don't need 30 rounds. Buy a shotgun. Buy a double-barrel shotgun. Fire two blasts outside the house. Buy a shotgun. Buy a shotgun. You don't need machine 